We're back in 2 Samuel today. Go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's been a while since we've been in our story of David here. If you remember in our introduction, which you probably don't, it's been so long now, I shared that the book can be broken down into three parts. The first part is basically chapters 1 through 10, and that focuses on David's rise as king. And it focuses on his righteous attributes and his actions. It gives us a a picture of Christ. We remember that David is a type, which is a fancy theological word, for example, of Christ. And so we saw that in the first ten chapters. The second section of the book is chapters 11 through 20, and that reveals a very different side of David. It's where we see his sin and his struggles As a result of that sin, in many respects, these chapters, this middle section, represents David as a type of Israel, not so much Christ. He does still still represent Christ at different times. We'll see that again. But you might say that in the first half of the book, or the first ten chapters, he's a type of Christ representing Christ. In the second section of the book, he's more of a type of Israel, meaning an example of Israel. And what's interesting about that is that shows David in his struggle with sin and the struggle with the consequences because of that sin. But it gives us a really good picture of how God interacts with his people when they sin. And that's why David sort of serves as a type or an example of Israel or possibly even a type or an example of the church because it tells us how God interacts with us when we've sinned. The last section then is just the the last few chapters of the book which cover a series of episodes and times in David's life, but it's not necessarily chronological. The events in the first 20 chapters are primarily chronological for the most part. The last chunk is just stories selected from David's life throughout his life. And um, we're kind of in that middle section right now. We're starting in chapter 12. We started chapter 11 right before our, our break and all this COVID stuff hit. And boy, it was a doozy, wasn't it? It was David's sin of adultery and murder. Probably one of the most well-known stories from David's life. We saw how his sin began innocently enough. He simply happened to be walking up on his rooftop and he looked down and he saw Bathsheba bathing. Chose to continue looking and then chose to summon her. And we, as we went through that story, we realized that Sin is just like that. He allowed himself, David did, to get carried away and enticed by his own lust, just as James to, or Paul, or I'm sorry, James wrote in his letter. And because of that, his lust ultimately then led to unimaginable sin, not just the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, but the murder of her husband and of some men that had been around her husband. And we saw how that sin, or we will see how that sin led or leads to a spiral of other sin and wickedness. And what we kind of learned from that is sin rarely happens in and of itself, just by itself. It always seems to suck in all kinds of other things around it. You know, one small lie leads to other lies and cover-ups. And we saw that with David. And so we're kind of in the middle of that story. Um, David has sinned, He's committed adultery. He's murdered her husband. And then the story picks up today. Um, Sometimes I do alliterations. You know what that is, where you start your sections with certain letters to help people remember it. problem with this is that uh, (laughs) there are a ton of C's I'm going to use today. Because this story is one of confrontation. It's one of condemnation. It's one of confession, clemency, 
consequences, communion, and ultimately covenant loyalty. And I'll go through those as we go through this. Let's look at the first one. Starts in chapter 12. We're going to read through some verses here, but this is where David is actually confronted. That's your first see. He's confronted over his sin by the prophet Nathan. Look at the first few verses here. Then David sent, I'm sorry, then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and he said, There were two men in one city, and one rich and the other poor. The the rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And And it was like a daughter to him. But a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock of his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So in summary, we basically have this story of a rich man who steals a poor man's one and only lamb in order to feed his guest. Now in the ancient Near East, parables like this were often used to confront those who were in authority In other words, a lesser stature individual of a higher stature. So it's fairly common. It's when Nathan just uses that practice. We have the prophet of God going to the king, a man in authority. If the king didn't like what the prophet said, he could put him to death. It wasn't obviously something that would honor God, but in that culture and society, you had to approach such men with a certain amount of respect and dignity. And so Nathan does that. And one of the tools often used were stories and parables just like the one that Nathan does here. There's actually a term for what he's done here. It's referred to as a self-condemnation parable. It was used or designed in such a way to cause somebody to pronounce judgment upon themselves. Because that's obviously much more effective, isn't it? That if I come to you and say you've sinned, it's not nearly as effective as you going, oh my gosh, I've sinned. And so he uses this self-condemnation parable to approach David. Now, even though we as readers know that this is a parable, it's not presented that way necessarily. In other words, the way David responds to it, he he seems to think of it and realize that it's a legal matter that Nathan's bringing to him. David not only served as king, but as a judge. People He would sit in the gates and people would bring him their cases and he would rule on those cases. And so that's the way that Nathan approaches David, as if this is a real case. I want you to notice the subtlety here. The rich man happens to be a shepherd, just like David. Verse 2 says, The rich man had a great many flocks and herds. Another subtlety, the poor man represents Uriah, who had very little in comparison to David. Notice it says, Nothing except one little ewe lamb. You know, one thing we know of our military today is that our soldiers are not paid very much. It was typical in David's day as well. So the... Poor man represents Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. The ewe lamb actually represents Bathsheba here. There's a number of ways we can see this. First off, notice that he uses the word daughter here in verse 3. Well, the word daughter is made up of two Hebrew words, one of which is the word bath. Does that sound familiar? Bathsheba. There's also some brilliant hints throughout this with repetition of certain words. I want you to look at verse 3 again with me. Notice that it says, It, the ewe lamb, would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. Jump down to verse 11. 
uh, chapter 11 actually. Go back one chapter. I want you to look at something that Uriah says. Uriah said to David, the ark of... For the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelter, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? Did you notice the repetition of words there? One thing that the Hebrews did was they would use repetition like this. Hebrew is a very poetic language. And you have to pay attention to these little, almost subtle clues when the authors are writing. And so we find here that in the parable... Nathan uses the exact same three words that Uriah had said before, drawing the parable together with the episodes, or the episode that preceded it. The same three words are actually repeated in verse 13, where it says, Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drink, and in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants. So David uses those same three words in describing Uriah in chapter 11, verse 13 as well. In fact, the word lie there is also used in chapter 11, verse 14 to describe what David did with Bathsheba. And so what we have are these subtle hints in this text that this is all about what David had done to Bathsheba and to Uriah. And the author who wrote it links it together for us very subtly by repeating these words and again using the word bath both to refer to Bathsheba and this Ulam who was like a daughter to this man. Notice how David actually responds. Look at verses 5 through 7. David responds and unwillingly condemns himself. There's your second C word. So not only was he confronted, but now David actually condemns himself. Look at verses 5 through 7. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. It is I who anointed you king over Israel and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. So David responds as you would expect with indignation. His anger is provoked because of the injustice there. It says that David's anger burned great. Spell it out to him again. The Lord says, It is I you king over Israel. I who gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had not more things like these. Why have you despised the word of God by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword and the son of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. The Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up in your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion and he will wives and Indeed, secretly, but I will do. And I this house. Ultimately, the harem. Here, the Lord says, "I." Verse nine starts with a simple question: Why despised the word of the Lord, doing evil? Describe Esau's selling. Remember what he did? Came in. He, he was the first son. Should have gotten 
two-thirds of the inheritance, basically, but he was hungry, and he sees his brother making up a lousy bowl of stew. Basically gives up his whole entire birthright just for that one bowl of stew. So it says he despised his birthright. He thought very little of it. Saw no value in it. This is the same word that Micah uses when David returns from battle and he's dancing in the street and he's celebrating the Lord. It says that she despised him as she looked at him. Same word used by Isaiah when he refers to the Messiah when he says, He was despised and forsaken of men. A sorrow and acquaintance that the world looked I'll give you two passages you can look up for further study on this. No, Numbers 15.31 and Proverbs 13.13. We despise God, it leads us oftentimes to sin. Think about what happens today. Um, the world thinks very little of the Word of God, does it not? And that explains why the world of God's word. They give it very little value. Amy and I were talking on the way to church this morning here. I was doing most of the talking. As I look around and I see Christians discuss options when it comes to who to vote for and other things, and um, I find it disheartening that that many don't seem to look at things from a biblical worldview. They look at things from a more worldly viewpoint. And so, and, and I don't want to get too political here, but when I look at somebody like Donald Trump, I have to plug my nose because I don't like his character. I don't like who he is. But I have a hard time arguing with many of his policies, and especially related to abortion and to um, uh, to Christian rights and religious freedom and and um, stuff like that. And then I look at that at the other party and I, and I see the direct opposite, favoring abortion, wanting to pay for abortion, um, homosexual rights and marriages and um, any number of anti-Christ-like things or anti-Christian things. And um, we obviously have to think through voting our conscience and doing what we believe is right and, and that's that's good. That's what we should do. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to vote for Trump. Or, or but what I what I struggle greatly with is voting for someone who is diametrically opposed to everything we stand for as believers. Um, if somebody doesn't want to vote for Donald Trump, I'm okay with that. What I can't understand is voting for somebody who is diametrically opposed to what Christ stands for. Find somebody else to vote for if you don't like Trump. But somebody who stands for the things that we believe. And it's disheartening to me when I hear Christians argue, well, I can't vote for him because he's immoral. I'm thinking, but but you want to vote for somebody who's immoral. We're all immoral. It makes no logical sense. And again, it's not about voting for Trump or others. I'm not suggesting you do that. What I'm saying is that it disheartens me greatly when we despise what the Word of God stands for. It leads us to do that. Because what ought to form what we do and how we vote really is what we believe God's Word says about issues. And I think about David serving Nebuchadnezzar, and I think about um, uh, how many times we see in the Scriptures God using wicked and unrighteous men to carry out his purpose and his plan and how 
Christians and Israel even at times served those individuals. Um, I've heard people are you know say, well, Pence can't be a Christian because look at who he. Why? It's no different than David serving Nebuchadnezzar or Joseph serving the Pharaoh of Egypt. You know, and so I think a lot of it is we look at the church today. We see people who within the church who despise the word of God meaning they just don't give it much weight they don't give it much credit and that's exactly what happens here with David the the Lord is basically saying you despised my word David it's what led to your sin you didn't think highly of it and so he not only reminds David of that he rebukes him he even continues his rebuke here verse 9 You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife as your wife and you've killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. We immediately recognize that David committed adultery and murder. However, his sin also involved covetousness and stealing because that's the way the Lord discusses it here. Do you notice something about these? So far in the story of David, we've had four, at least four sins mentioned. They're all directly related to the Ten Commandments. Number 6, 7, 8, and 10. That'd give them a failing grade, wouldn't it? Sin is often like this. It rarely operates alone. It often invites other sin to join it. So it wasn't just that David lusted. And he went and he took her. Slept with her. Lies about it. Covers it up. Kills her husband. Other men are killed along with him. Then he tries to cover it up even further by marrying her and thinking, man, if I marry her and now she's pregnant, nobody will know. I mean, I'm going to run out of fingers. Trying to count the number of times David sinned with all this. In the third and final stage of this condemnation here, the Lord recites the consequences that David would face for his sin. There's primarily two consequences he mentioned here in uh, verses 10 through 12. The first is that David's house would forever experience violence and death. We see that carried out in chapters 11 through 20. David's life would never be the same after this with his own family. So the first consequence is his house would forever experience violence and death. The second is that David would experience adultery against him. That fits what the Old Testament has. There's this actual term called lex talionis, Another way to read that is the law of retribution. It's an Old Testament law. Right from Leviticus chapter 24. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted upon him. It's called the law of retribution. And so what the Lord says here is, David, you have committed adultery. That will now be committed against you. And the Lord even told him, what you did was done in private. This will be done publicly. It doesn't make the Lord responsible for it. It's a consequence. And in fact, like father, like son, is what we'll see. Because the adultery committed against David will be committed by his son. So again, it'll happen in public, where David's had happened privately. So what happens after that? David's been confronted, he's been condemned, if you will. I don't mean that in an eternal sense. But David confesses his sin now. So we get a little bit of light here. 
Look at verse 13 of chapter 12. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Let this sink in for a second. I have sinned against the Lord. It's probably one of the most remarkable examples of confession in the whole entire Bible. There's a number of reasons for that. What is confession like today? There was a Democratic, I think it's a senator candidate, I think it's a candidate for the Senate the other day, came out that he was texting nasty pictures back and forth with a woman having an affair. So he came out and took responsibility for it. Now he's not going to step down. He's still going to run because he has stuff to do. But he took responsibility for it. I'm, I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't have done it. You know, I mean, that's kind of what we see with confessions today or admitting guilt. It's, I take responsibility for it. I hate that phrase. Really? What does that mean, take responsibility for it? You know, for politicians, it's simply, let's move on. Really? That's what he's saying. Nothing to see here. But David just, there is no better way to confess than what David did right here. I've sinned against the Lord. Short, it's to the point, it's direct, it's honest, it's truthful. One commentator put it this way, this is remarkable because it came with immediacy, without denial, and without excuse. How often do we see that when people admit to sin? I'm sorry if I offended you. Oh, I didn't mean to. And it's not that that's something we should never say, because clearly there's times where we offend. We don't mean to. But more often than not, it's enough to say, you know what, I was wrong. I hurt you. Forgive me. I'm going to add one final observation about this confession. It's the fact that it was direct and to the point. Notice what he says. I've sinned against the Lord. That's something else we rarely see. I've sinned against you. Yeah, but I've really sinned against the Lord. David recognized that it wasn't just a sin against Bathsheba. It wasn't just a sin against Uriah or the other men that were killed. He knows that his offense offended the one that it shouldn't have offended. The Lord. If we ever need a model to follow, then this will be it model of confessing sins and that's exactly what David does he's conf- confronted the Lord calls him out for it and David finally confesses well, what happens after that this is maybe one of my favorite parts of the text is that the Lord offers or exercises clemency clemency it's a form of forgiveness It doesn't ignore the sin, ultimately forgives it, and in some respects waives some of the penalties for it. So if you receive clemency for something, it means that some of the penalties have been removed. Notice he says in verse 13, The Lord has also taken away your sin, you shall not die. By the law, David should have been put to death. He committed adultery and murder, he should have been put to death. But the Lord suspends that part of the penalty doesn't wipe out the consequences, but does spare David the ultimate penalty of death. 
This is an amazing expression of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. In fact, it's actually in a, it's a um, foreshadowing of the gospel, isn't it? Because what has God done with our sin? He takes it away. He takes away the penalty. He did that with David. He took it away. The reaction here by God to David's confession is not atypical for God. Because he's a God of forgiveness. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 32. Psalm chapter 32. Verse 5. I acknowledge, this is written by David. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You forgave the guilt of my sin. You took it away. What about Psalm 86, chapter, or, uh, Psalm chapter 86? Verse 5. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. We see that throughout the Psalms, the Lord's desire to forgive, his willingness to forgive. That is typical of our Lord. How about uh, Micah chapter 7? Look at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 7. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to your forefathers from days of old. That's the way the Lord is. Ready, eager to forgive. When we confess, in fact, we're even told in 1 John 1 9, as Christians, when we confess our sins, He is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and just that God we see here with David. As the old idiom says, sometimes you make your bed, you have to lie in it. It's no different for David. Look at uh, verses 14 through 23. The Lord removed David's guilt, but he didn't remove Go back to uh, chapter 12 of Second Samuel. Verse, starting at verse 14. However, because of this deed... You have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child so that or the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. Did you catch that? Why didn't he say the child that Bathsheba? Did you catch that? Why does he say the child that Uriah's widow? I think the Lord's reminding David. It's not his wife. Remember, David, this was somebody else's wife. 
that just bore you a child. Again, a little subtle way of the author here reminding us what was happening. So that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For he said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that his child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you've done? While the child was still alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you rose and ate food. David said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me, and the child may live. But now he's died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. For David's sin. That doesn't sound fair, does it? I don't know that I necessarily... Especially in the ancient Near, Near East, children were as well. But I don't know that we fully grasp and because of the way it was brought about, and would refuse to allow David to buy that. Didn't deserve to die himself. The Lord used to allow. David something that he Bathsheba David scorned the Lord in committing a child even with that child David tried to sort of I think what I from this here ultimately is that God to remove the consequences and I think for some confess a sin I wipe it away wipe it clean so can you imagine what would happen if God did that every time we sinned if he removed all the consequences of it would there be any motivation except for our love for Jesus do you think that's really enough I mean look at your kids do they just obediently obey for their lives as children because they have this great affection and love for us as parents? No, we teach them and we train them as they grow that there are consequences for their action and sometimes we just have to let those consequences play out so that they understand there are consequences for sin. Like, Daddy, are you mad at me for sinning? Sometimes I struggle because I'm kind of like, 
I don't want to discourage them at the same token. I want them to understand that this sin does create tension in our relationship. So yes, I am upset. I still love you, but I want you to feel the tension. I want you to feel that I'm disappointed. Because I don't want it just to be, no, no problem, because they'll do it again. One great motivator is, I don't want to break that relationship with my parent. I want to maintain that. We do the same thing, husbands and wives, and and so... One of the takeaways for us in this is that he doesn't always remove the consequence for the sin just because we confess, and he didn't with David. And we're going to see that play out in David's life. I want to mention something else from this, this section of verses 14 through 26, and it's our fifth C word. Do you notice what happens with, with this? I want to use the word communes. David communes with the, with the Lord through this section of the passage. Notice that he pleads all night with the Lord. It says, night after night, and he even weeps and he fasts. The Hebrew tense that's used here means that the action was repeated over and over and over. The child was sick for seven days, and over the course of that seven days, David fasted, and night after night he fell on his face and he wept and he fasted, hoping that this child would survive. The text tells us that he asked the Lord to do that. He was hoping that the Lord would heal this child. We don't know what the what was going on with the child. We just know that he was dying. We also see in this, the language suggests that David was crying out to the Lord, not just to be gracious to him, but actually on behalf of the child, it says. So David was thinking of the child himself, not just, I'm going to lose my son but thinking of the child and what the child was probably suffering through as well. That's exactly what we should expect for a parent. Some of you have struggled through that. You know what that's like like to be grieving, praying for your children, especially when they're facing something like this. However, what we don't expect is what David does after the child dies. Did you notice this? Cleans himself up, He goes over to the temple and he worships the Lord there. Where's the anger? Where's the bitterness? God, I can't believe you did this. That child didn't deserve to die. It was my fault. Why'd you do that? It's not right. Because remember, the Lord told him the child would die. This wasn't like all of a sudden the child got sick. And David's wondering, why is he sick? He knows that the Lord says, David, I'm going to take the child's life child's going to die. So where's the bitterness and anger on David's part here? Why isn't he mad at God? Shouldn't he be? I mean, that's what our gut tells us, right? You know, it's interesting. Another thing that irritates me is when I hear pastors and others say, it's all right to be angry at God. No, it's not. God doesn't deserve our anger. Now, Is it understandable to say that we respond that way? Yes. Is it okay to say, I understand why you're angry? But no, it is not okay to be angry with God because He's not the one at fault. We might expect David to withdraw from the Lord out of shame and guilt, knowing that it was his sin that ultimately led to the child's death. So where's maybe the shame that David would feel? But instead, what we see is him do the exact opposite. 
David draws near to the Lord after this. You know, it's funny, as I was studying through this, we don't see what David did for those, or we see what he did for those seven days, but we don't know what he prayed. We don't know how he prayed. Until you realize that Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 probably record the words that David prayed. Um, When we were first going through this, Dustin um, had planned to um, take us through Psalm 51 between... um, or like after, between this week and the, the next week. I don't know that we're going to do that at this point. We'll see. But you want a picture of what David was thinking and praying while he was um, in this situation with his son. Take a look at those two psalms, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. There's a lot going on there. But I find this striking that in the end, David's sin here, instead of driving him further away from the Lord... Um, facing the consequences of his sin instead of driving him away from the Lord drove him the other direction. And we find David's heart broken. Remember, up until this point now, what's he doing? He's despising the word of God, just going about, I'm a king, I can do what I want, I see this woman, I'll take her, now i got a problem, I'll kill her husband, giving no thought to the Lord through any of it. Now he's driven back to the temple where the presence of the Lord is, brought to his knees, flat on his face, praying for his son. And then when all that ends, he goes back to the temple and he actually communes and worships the Lord. Ever wonder why David is a man after God's own heart? Confrontation and chastisement have a way of doing this to us. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 119. Psalm 119, we're going to look at verses 65 and following. I think it's Psalm 119. Let's take a look here. You've dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good, and you do good, Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Notice what he says there? It was good that I was afflicted. It's good that I was chastised by you because in this text he says, because of that I'll now observe your precepts. I'll love your word. Look at Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 11. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. In other words, we shouldn't reject or despise the Lord when he chastises us, when he corrects us, when he has to discipline us. You can turn to Hebrews chapter 12 on your own. Look at verses 5 through 11. We're told that the Lord's chastisement is a good thing. So when he confronts us and he chastises us, if anything, it should drive us to what happened with David draw us to him rather than away from him. I'm not so sure that a lot of Christians understand that. 
you know, um, David, what's the Netflix? I haven't watched it yet. The Netflix um, talks kind of about the prosperity gospel today that we sort of see. Do you remember what it is? Not the social, the gospel. I can't remember the name of it. I've watched half of it already. Kimberly and I watched part of it. Yeah, it, there's, a, there's a, a, a movie on Netflix basically looking at Christianity in the United States and this emphasis on what many of us have been calling the prosperity gospel. When we think prosperity gospel, we think of the Pentecostal movement, word faith. But it's, the word describes what hap- what's happening in the American church today where we have this Americanized Christianity where everything is roses all the time and life is good. And what you find is that when we, when we don't experience that, we leave the church or God's to blame. Most Christians don't understand the call, like Peter said, that we're to suffer. Life is not supposed to be all good. Around the world, Christians suffer every single day. And so there's a, a movie about it that looks at that, a two-hour movie. Netflix. Kimberly and I watched about half of it the other night. I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Part of the Christian life is chastisement and confrontation by the Lord because it draws us closer to Him. And David sees that in his sin. The Lord loved him enough to do that to chastise him and to confront him. May we be the same. Now, for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize verses 24 through 31. I'm going to read them, but then we'll not spend much time on it. But look at chapter 12 again, 2 Samuel, verses 24 through 31. This last section is that David experiences the Lord's covenant loyalty. That's your last C word that David experiences the Lord's covenant loyalty to him because of the way he's responded. But chapter 12, verses 24 through 31. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. Now Joab fought against Rehoboth uh, and the sons of Ammon and captured the royal city. Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rehoboth. I have even captured the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and capture it, or I will capture the city myself and, I will be named after, and it will be named after me. So David gathered all the people and went to Rabbah, fought against it and captured it. Then he took the crown of their king from his head and, it weighed, or and his weight was a talent of gold and it was a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head and he brought out the spoil of that city in great amounts. He also brought about out the people who were in it and set them under saws, sharp iron instruments, and iron axes and made them pass through the brick, brick kiln. And thus he did to all the cities of the son of Ammon. And David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now it's kind of a brutal passage there. But what do we see here? We actually see the Lord's faithfulness to David at this point. Because the Lord promised he would fight David's battles and would be on David's side. And so even after this sin... David, as he confesses, as he communes with the Lord, we find that the Lord is still faithful to him. David's sin did not completely separate him from the Heavenly Father because he had basically forgiven him. And David is now still in this covenant relationship. Remember that that covenant is so important in the Old Testament because it's this idea that God binds himself to us in his faithfulness through his word, through his covenant. And nothing breaks that covenant Sin can put strain on it. Sin can cause tension on it. But the Lord remains faithful. 
And so even though we're going to see David live out now in the next few chapters the consequences of his sin, we're going to see how God is continually faithful to him anyway. And so again, I'll just summarize that last section that David experiences or continues to experience God's covenant loyalty even after such an egregious sin. You notice we're going to also see that as we look at Israel in the Old Testament, aren't we? Or um, when we get to the um, millennial kingdom. God is faithful to Israel. He hasn't abandoned Israel. He's loyal to Israel in spite of their disobedience. We saw that in the book of Judges. Israel would sin. The Lord would bring upon them chastisement. They would repent. He would return favor to them. They would sin again. And we see this cycle where God continued to remain faithful. He does that with David as well. In fact, in kind of a striking contrast here, you notice how when Bathsheba is first mentioned in this last chunk, she's referred to as Uriah's wife. But now she's referred to David's wife. The Lord does not let him be blessed with the first child, that was committed under adultery, but now blesses him with Solomon. It's interesting how God works, how he can take even the most horrific situation and use it and turn it around into a blessing. Um, can't say I always understand that, but that's the way God's loyalty and his covenant faithfulness works when it comes to his people. Take you back to 1 John 1.9. 1, one yeah, 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and then he purifies us from all unrighteousness. We'll go ahead and we'll just wrap it up with that. But, you know, this is a striking passage because, again, it's a reflection of the way the gospel works. You know, if we, if we don't see the gospel in these Old Testament passages, then we don't understand the gospel. We don't understand the Old Testament. We see this amazing picture where you have this man who's been given everything. And he despises the, the, the Lord's word and he commits egregious sin. The sin of the worst kind. Sin that you and I likely will probably, hopefully never commit. Doesn't make us any better than David. It's just that, boy, that's, the, that's sort of the top, isn't it? Murder? Adultery? But yet, look at how God responds when David responds the way he's supposed to respond. The Lord confronts him. David is direct in admitting his sin. I've sinned against the Lord. The Lord honors that, forgives David, gives him clemency, still allows him to face the repercussions of his sin in an earthly sense. But even in that, even allowing him to, con- to, to have to deal with his consequences, he still remains faithful, offers his covenant loyalty to David. Is that not the gospel? Is that not what we see? The Lord saves us. Sometimes we still despise His word and sin. Sometimes we get confronted. We should confess. And God still remains faithful to us. And it should, of anything, drive us closer to Him rather than farther away. So again, I think this is just a good... While it doesn't have gospel written on the top of it, it's a great presentation of the gospel.